Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today I'm talking to Justin Jackson, the co-founder of Transistor FM. We talk about the problems with common entrepreneurial advice, bootstrapping a value-driven software business, and how open standards benefit indie founders in particular. Here's Justin. One thing that frustrates me a lot is how unreflected many things are in the community of mm -hmm. entrepreneurs and indie hackers and founders. There are all these best practices that people rarely reflect on and really just jump onto and try to execute to out-execute the competition, whatever that might mean in their context. And it's, it's super frustrating to, I, I was actually going to ask you this as a particular question because I wanted to, to see what you think about advice. And I feel there's a lot of advice out there and most of it is bad in, in a sense that it's not applicable, it's not pragmatic, and it's kind of has ulterior motives somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah. And I, I was wondering what, what your perspective is on this. Like, do we as people who have some experience in the field, do we have to like seed the idea space out there to combat misinformation that is quite prevalent? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, the human world is a world of ideas. And the way we share ideas is by talking about them, discussing them, writing them, podcasting about them, making videos about them. And I think um, ideas should be put forth. And then I think those ideas have to stand up to scrutiny. I think ideas need to be debated. I think ideas need to be tested, evaluated, all of those things. So I'm pro-idea. What concerns me sometimes is that some of the, some of these ideas are just so thin in that <laughs> the, the way that they get memefied and generalized are devoid of any context any nuance any sort of exploration and if you challenge them you're seen as a pessimist if you question people who are trumpeting them you're seen as you know a negative nancy i i that's the part that i think is unhealthy even ideas like charge more charge more is a good idea in a certain context but you you have to get deeper than just the 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 meme version of that that just gets spread around the world you know it's like there's people are making stickers that say charge more and nothing wrong with that but as soon as it becomes a slogan And there's like, okay, well, let's dive into, let's actually get into the weeds on that. Like, what does that mean to charge more? Even, you know, all these people are raising prices right now. There's this like general idea that in a recession, you want to raise prices. Sorry, it, when there's inflation, you want to raise prices because everybody else is raising prices because theoretically your costs are going up. And I mean, I'm, I'm as big of a dummy as the next person, but... I want to at least investigate that or have more of the smart people investigating these things and going, okay, but <laughs> in, is this always true? And in, in when would it maybe not be true? How do you test this out? And I, it has to go beyond, uh, you know, like these blog posts, which are three months ago, we raised our prices and we increased MRR by 300%. Okay. Well, report back in six months, nine months, 12 months, 36 months, 48 months. I want to see, I want to see the whole trend. And, um, we have a very short news cycle, even in the bootstrap indie hacker startup space, people publish a blog post. And again, I, I understand why it happens. These blog posts will often resonate and then people, they'll get kind of embedded in people's understanding and but very few people are going well let's go back to that post where they wrote that they increased prices let's see what happened since then because you can increase prices and sure you might increase uh your monthly recurring revenue short term but then if we go back in 12 months and uh overall revenue is down well You can see there was a trade-off there, and maybe that trade-off yeah. is worth it, and maybe it's not worth it. It's probably something that people don't even report. 
right? They don't report that because oh, yeah. you, you only share the interesting stuff, which is one of the biggest problems that I have with people attempting to build in public. Yes. Right? They, they go for the, the interesting blog posts yeah. that are great and that are motivational, yes. but the long-term consequences, the damages that these kind of things actually might do, they kind of pulled, like they just put out of the rug. Like uh, that, yes. that is a big problem. Yeah, and again, because to me, I'm just interested in... And I have this idea that that knowledge and our discovery of things that are true is generally ascendant, meaning the more we investigate, the more we test, the more we rigorously evaluate ideas and con uh, concepts, the the more knowledge we have. And this knowledge is ascendant, meaning we keep climbing up these stairs towards uh, a greater understanding of truth. And we, we can't get there unless we can, we can apply that rigor to everything to go, okay, well, is this really, is this, is this really true? <laughs> and when is it true? In what context is it true? Was it just true for this person? It, could it also be true for me? How would I evaluate that? How would I evaluate the trade-offs? How I, would I evaluate the risks? And it becomes more complicated quite quickly uh and yeah i i think that there is potential even for i mean we even saw this a little bit back in the early kind of SaaS days when you had salesforce come out and then fairly soon after you had Basecamp and then ruby on rails and then there's this explosion of interest in building SaaS and ruby on rails in particular and if you look at that first, see, a lot of people don't even remember this or know about this, but if you were around for it, there was this kind of gigantic movement of people launching Rails-based SaaS apps. And uh, maybe at the time we lost the, some of the uh, dissemination of information was lost on some of those folks. And you know, many of them did not succeed. Many of them um, lost a lot of money. Many of them struggled for years and years and years and then had to throw in the towel. And that's always going to be a part of business. But my hope is that we could, if anyone's thinking about starting a business, we could at least help them see the landscape as clearly as possible. And what helps with that is just uh, the rigor. It helps to rigorously kind of process and evaluate ideas as a community. Um, so yeah, advice. Sure. I mean, I think if you've done, if you've, if you've been around for a while and you've had some success and you've had some failures, there are certain situations which are kind of clear to anybody with experience where it's like, okay, uh, this idea you have just does not seem to have enough traction. And it's maybe, you know, you could maybe point to people where it could be. Maybe it's, there's not enough demand in this market. Maybe it has to do with your product. It's not good enough or not stable enough or not polished enough. Maybe it's just the competition is that much better. So I think we can give advice. Um, but what I don't really like is this kind of slogan, one word, two words, one sentence advice that then just gets trumpeted around like a cult or a religion or something. Um, it, and, you know, move fast and break things and all these other things. It's like these are just silly statements that don't actually have any uh, reasonable meaning. <laughs> Meaning if you apply them, you could have like move fast and break things. You could apply in a million different ways with a million different results. It's not uh, it's not uh, repeatable in the sense that you go, okay, well, I'm just going to move fast and break things, whatever that means. And then I'm going to get a Facebook <laughs> style result. Like, yeah, obviously, I, like, uh, <laughs> of course, it doesn't work that way. And but yeah. uh, oddly, I, I see people um acting and believing in that way and um yeah so i i advice is fine i think building in public is fine but the every founder at the end of the day 
it probably just comes down to founders. They have to ask those hard questions and struggle and research, contemplate, ask for help. Um, most of the good advice is being given in back channels, unfortunately, uh, just because real good advice requires context. And, you know, there's a lot of context I just don't want to give publicly about my business and my life. And um, I, I only share that with people I trust in the kind of back channel, the Telegram groups and the Slack DMs and the Twitter DMs and all those things. So that's the key. I think yeah. that that is 100% the key. Like applicable advice cannot be or advice cannot be applicable without the context for a in which it is given but by whom it is given and to whom it is given and for what, right? Like, do you have these both kind of sides and on, on the side of the person giving it, it's always anecdotal, obviously, because that's kind of where it comes from. So, you know, you have to translate it into something meaningful anyway. And that that's where you start like evaluating it and try to figure out is, is the person doing this because they want to help me or is, are they doing it for another reason? Like there are so many, so many things, just even from the transmission standpoint between sender of the message and recipient of the message when it comes to advice. I very much agree that trust is at the core of advice to begin with. And um, what I what I love, what you just brought out here is like the kind of Twitterfication, quotification of advice. And I think like move fast and break things is a great example because to me, that's not a description of anything you could ever do because it's so general and it's yeah. so unspecific, but it, it's a rallying cry for a kind of person that wants to, you know, do something in a specific way. Yes. That's, and, kind of, that's all it is, right? Like, yeah, and, can't be more specific than that. And the same thing applies to charge more. Charge more yes. than what? Charge more yeah. than when? Charge more <laughs> today <laughs> and <what>? tomorrow? <laughs> Repeatable forever? Like next week? Uh, you, it, it, it's I love not, it. <laughs> it's, it's not, there's no, there's no foundation. There's no, yeah. like for, for a culture that, you know, uh, <laughs> seemingly loves like mathematics and logic and programming and all these things, uh, all like I suck at math, but let's at least get a what are the variables here charge yeah. more when yes. how what's what are the starting uh variables what are the ending variables how, how do these things increase when does it stop like give give me yeah. some context here and it reminds me of an, another thing you recently talked about like when you talk about starting and ending variables that, and that's the kind of like visitor to trial con yeah. conversion thing right which is also something people hyper optimize for like with with all kinds of cheap tricks and growth hacks things that i detest because they're, they're short-term gains over long-term perspective right and that's really really bad if you choose the short-term stuff but what, what do you think about that like i i know that you put less emphasis on that now than you used to which is interesting because i would like to know why yeah that happened and how that happened well the there's always been these general rules of thumb that have been shared in the community. And I think they're, they're generally pretty good. So trial to paid conversion, credit card up front, visitor to trial, people say around 1%, trial to paid with credit card up front between 40 and 60%. And then there's a different, like no credit card up front, people say generally 5% plus visitor to trial, trial to paid 8% to 20%, depending on, um, you know, what you're doing. Now, Here's the problem. <laughs> that it's pretty easy to quantify with reasonable accuracy your trials and how many people converted to paid. Those numbers are almost always accurate because, you know, in Stripe these days we get, okay, well, this is a trial and then we could see, see them convert. Oh, that's a conversion, right? Those numbers, pretty solid. What's not solid and what is incredibly muddy is visitor because I, I this became most acute for me when I was working for a, a startup in Portland and I had to report on KPIs all the time and one of the KPIs was visitor you know number of visitors I put that in number of trials and then it would auto calculate visitor trial and you know ba whatever, based on whatever I was typing into those boxes in Excel um, you know my boss was either happy or not happy and then one day I was like digging through Mixpanel or Google Analytics or something. And I'm like, look at all these visits. Like these just look not real. And then I'm looking at it and, 
and I just found all these garbage visits that were being were being treated by Google Analytics and Mixpanel as legitimate visits, but weren't. And then sure enough, a month later, Google finally get comes around to tagging those as bots or spam or whatever. And so all those numbers I'd spent months inputting have zero meaning. Now, <laughs> if month to month or week to week or day to day, you can put a number in your spreadsheet one day and then wake up the next morning and Google says, ah, you know what? Um, you had, we said you had 10,000 unique visitors, but it turns out that 3,000 of those were not legitimate uh, visitors. <laughs> well, that changes your numbers substantially. So all of a sudden, my conversion rates look way better. How am I to know? And there's no reasonable baseline because I might have months with very little spam visits. But then the next month, I might have lots. But at the same time, the next month, I might have legitimate visitors increase. It's just very, very muddy. And people treat these this kind of attribution like it's like rock solid. And I've been doing product marketing now in SaaS since 2008. And... Those attribution numbers, I've never been, uh, I've never seen attribution numbers, like visitor numbers especially, that I was like, those are rock solid. I can trust those 100% because you just don't know. Your, your Samsung refrigerator could be pinging your website for all you know. Like it's completely possible. So, and we deal with this in podcast hosting all the time. And, you know, there's tons of smart people. And in podcasting, it's even more, you'd think it would be elevated in the sense that a download is what is monetizable for people who are selling ads, but <laughs> it's a moving target. It's like you, everybody, no matter who they are, whether it's Spotify, whether it's us, whether it's the biggest publishing places, the biggest trackers, they're all modifying their filters and their numbers all the time. So for me, it's like the only numbers I really look at for Transistor these days are number of trials and number of conversions. And we have a Slack bot now that Jason built that just shows us number of daily paid signups. And these days, you know, if, if we're in the double digits for paid signup, daily paid signups, we're pretty happy. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's a That's slow, number. if it's a slow day, we're like, you know, we're, we keep an eye on it, but, you know, and even those numbers have seasonal variations and COVID variations and, you know, economic variations, depending on recessions and things like that. So I don't, I, I don't know how you can have somewhat of a baseline and the more you've done it, you get this kind of third sense for, Okay, this is kind of what feels like. Oh yeah, every time, every year in December, things kind of slow down, and then for us, January people kind of wake up two weeks into January. I want to start a podcast, so you get kind of a a sense of when you might be in trouble. But yeah, I think visitor to trial is just. It, I haven't seen it being super helpful. Maybe as an overall trend, you can kind of see like, okay, this looks good, and uh, but. Even then, like if, I don't know, if, I guess if you saw a bunch of traffic converting from Reddit and you were like, okay, well, that was an interesting, you know, refer. But for me, it's like trials. And then I just ask every trial when they sign up, how'd you hear about us? So they're self-reporting right when they sign up, how they heard about us. And uh, I find that more helpful than trying to get a computer to accurately attribute a visitor and where they're coming from and all that stuff. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. Microacquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. Microacquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same, to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, 
Hey, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join acquire.com. It, it does remind me a lot of what people are currently trying to do with chat GPT, like with these kind of AI systems where they're trying to fake things in a way that aren't even detectable. And I'm, I'm always thinking about like any system that is monetized on a certain particular metric, either page views or even listens on a podcast where sponsors pay per amount of, of downloads or something like that. People will try to game that. People will always try to outfake the, the system in, in a way that gives them bigger numbers. And, and anything that you then try to track or analyze will have these things in there, right? Like yeah. It's just unavoidable. People are trying to circumvent any kind of system in their favor. Yeah, exactly. I, the old trick in podcasting used to be you would, if you posted a direct link to the MP3 on Twitter, it would get thousands of downloads. And it would help bump up your numbers for when you talk to sponsors. And there were tons of people doing this this thing. And, uh, the, you know, and the, the most recent one was uh, people were putting in video games, you know, that my kids have to play and they have these horrid ads you got to watch through and they were putting podcast listens in there. So you got to listen to 30 seconds of this podcast in order to keep playing the game. And these were IAB certified downloads for a podcast. IAB is the advertising bureau that is supposed to track all these things. So these are legitimate downloads, which is, but it's just some 10 year old going, I just want to get back to this game. Okay, I'll listen to this thing and it downloading. For me, always, the, the simpler the better. And, uh, I mean, I've tried all sorts of complex, like marketing, tracking and everything. And about a year into Transistor, I just ripped it all out. And now we use Fathom for like basic page views on our website. Okay, what's, you know, what's our most popular page? It's our pricing page. Okay, good to know that. Is traffic kind of, it, traffic's basically pretty steady. Okay, that's great to know. Where are people finding us? So here's the refers. Good to know. And then I just track in Stripe how many trials we have, what's our trial to paid conversion, and how many paid customers we have, and what MRR is. And uh, for podcasting, I always like looking at the response rate, which is just a completely made up metric that you can't really report on in a graph. But it's when I release an episode, how many people do I hear from? <laughs> how many people reach out, try to find me some way you know, and this is after they, you know, they're driving to work, listening to the podcast, like a lot of people are listening to your show right now. And if we've said anything that like kind of hits them and they're like, oh, I got to email Arvid about that when I get home. And then they, they just think about it and then they actually get home. They say hi to their wife and kids and then they actually go to their laptop and type you an email. That response rate matters. That's the most important metric did you move people enough that they were willing to go okay as soon as i get hey siri remind me to you know oh i just mm -hmm. put on siri remind me to uh talk to arvid when i get home about that episode because yeah. it it made me mad or it made me think that he's totally right and this is why and you know those are the responses that i love are people you know responding and the other thing is those responses sometimes come uh, they don't all come all at once. Like we still have people signing up for Transistor who say, hey, I listened to like this one episode of Build Your SaaS right when you were starting and it just had such a profound impact on me. I filed it away. Yesterday, my boss asked if, you know, we should sign up for a podcast hosting platform. And I said, oh, we got to use Transistor. But it's been two years since he listened to the episode right so these responses don't call come all at once either it's um it's 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 like almost ant antithetical to the way marketers like uh evaluating campaigns it's like well if it's not within this 30-day window doesn't matter it's like well but humans don't operate on a 30-day window humans operate on a you know a, a much different timeline and if we're trying to fit everything into these rigid 
you know, whatever attribution windows or whatever, you're missing out on how most humans make decisions, buy things, get moved, are influenced. That's, that's not, that's not how we work, you know? And, uh, it's easier to just simplify it, ask customers why they signed up and keep it simple. You don't need all that extra machinery to and if anything, it's just not going to give you the right information. You're just going to be, you know, driving this bus based on maps that or a GPS that's not actually taking you anywhere interesting. Just simple stuff, just simple touchstones along the way. We don't need, um, you know, to make it too complicated. Yeah, and, and I think that your business that you've built, it, it doesn't, at least from the outside, doesn't look too complicated either, right? Solving a very specific problem for a very specific kind of people. I think you've done a really good job with this, uh, a great job even, if I may say so myself, being Thank a you. customer of your fine establishment. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's like you, you've been doing this for five years now, right? Like it's it's been a, almost over five years, I think. It's It's been a while. Yeah, we signed our, you're right. Yeah, we signed our partnership docs in... Uh, well, we, we decided to work together January 2018, and I think we'd signed everything by February 2018. So, and it's 2023 now, right? Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, it has been, it's been an incredible journey. And, and, and especially to reflect back on that time where... You know, we wanted to build something together and we had some hunches about the podcast market. Mm-hmm. We had a pretty good idea that we would be good partners, but you never know. And we just feel so much gratitude that, you know, folks like you have come along and um, decided to become customers and um, use the product and enjoy the product. And uh, yeah, it's been incredible. I think the things we did in those few first few months were interesting because we, we kind of talked a lot about our values and what we wanted out of the company. What is this company for? Now, a product is for customers to use and enjoy and get value out of. A company is for the founders and the employees and the employees' families and the community that in which they exist. And we thought a lot about the product. We wanted to make... We, we want to build the best podcast hosting and analytics on the planet, offer the best customer support, have um, really insightful features, um, really intuitive UIs, all those things. But what's the company for? Well, the company is to give us, the stakeholders, a good life. Founders, employees, employees, families, and then the community. And um, I think you can do that work and still not have a successful company because so much of it depends on these other variables. Having a market that is hungry for a particular product and then building a product that can outshine the competition and attract uh, you know, customers. So it's not a guaranteed way to build a company, but if those other things fall into place, it really is uh, a great way to build uh, a company that serves the stakeholders, that gives the stakeholders a better life. And having built many different kinds of companies from retail shops, like we had two snowboard shops in my early 20s, to, you know, I've sold ebooks, I've been in consulting, I've worked for startups. Um, often businesses kind of own the founder. They are running the founder and running the founder ragged. Like they're just um, founders, too many founders, I think, and too many business owners are just on this, uh, this treadmill that's not very fun and really grinds them down and burns them out eventually. And um, ha- being able to put these pillars in place, these values and these questions we ask before we build anything really helped ground us in like, okay, this, comp- this company is going to build us a better life. So when things came along, like we had one, one uh, story is uh, 
it was just John and I at the time. We're the only two people in the company. And we get a call from, it must be a Fortune 10 company. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. And uh, he is interested in our private podcasting feature. Already folks in his organization are using Transistor. He noticed he's in the you know the 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 C level suite at that company, and now he wants to negotiate a bigger deal. So he asks to book a call. He books a call with me, and we're talking, and he's like, "Wow, like you've got you've got you know fifteen of our accounts already using you. I want to bring you five thousand. All of our divisions. We're going to bring them all here. I love your product." He said, "I I spent all day reviewing." Uh, reviews of Transistor Online. You're consistently recommended in the top three. Um, I logged into the product. I looked at it. It's amazing. You have your team is executed at the highest level. This is great. Um, and he says, you know what? After this call, I'm gonna let's get your legal team to talk to my legal team, and then we'll get <laughs> your uh, trust and safety folks to talk to my trust and safety folks. And then, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, it's just you. I said, this company is just two people. And he, he literally paused for 30 seconds. He was like, it, it was like he, he lost his breath. Mm-hmm. He's like, what? I said, yeah, it's just John and I running this. And I can tell you, if you need all of that, I know because we have these values. Like, I don't want that. I don't want to hire a sales team. I don't want to have to have... Like I said, in order for me to do business with you, I'm going to have to hire three lawyers full time. I'm going to have to hire like an accounting department. We have none of that. We're two people and we just love the life we have. It's calm. It's it's um, it's not like even though it was just two of us, we could run things in this manageable way. The pace of life was good. I said, before I got on this call, I was I was snowboarding an hour ago. And he was just like reeling from all of this. It was just like, he could not believe it. And so he's like, so you don't want these 5,000 extra customers? I said, no, not if it's going to take all that. So he paused again. And he said, well, what if we bought you? And I said, again, I said, man... I just know we don't want to work for you. <laughs> we just don't want to work for you. We built ourselves a great business and a great life and we're good. And he just couldn't believe it. He was just like, okay, I guess the call's done, you know? But it was those values, those questions, those pillars we put in place about what was important to us. And instead of like responding to, oh, of course, like if somebody comes to you with 5,000 accounts, of course, like just ratchet up your whole company to be able to serve that enterprise customer because that's going to be, you know, tons of more revenue. And of course, if a bigger company says they want to buy you, you should take it seriously. Like that's what you're supposed to do. And we were just like, Maybe it's because we were older when we started Transistor, but it's like, well, if I go work for this company, and I mean, John really felt it because this was his first kind of independent, you know, company uh, on his own. And he's like, why would I give this up? Like, I have all this flexibility and all this freedom. I'm having more fun than I've ever had in my life. We're serving great customers. We're not going to be billionaires, but we're going to, we're doing well here. Like let's, we would rather enjoy this for as long as it lasts than, you know, trade it for something we actually don't want, which is the freedom, the life, the good life, you know? Yeah. So that's the kind of choice you can make as a bootstrapper though, right? Like that's, that's what, if there's no other interest in how big your company should grow and how much money you should make. Yeah. Right. Well, then, and, then you can make those choices. And again, this is why I have I have changed my opinion on funding a bit because it was hard that first year. Mm-hmm. And I think getting someone else to risk their money so that you can try out an idea can be a good idea, especially, you know, some of these other like Tiny Seed and Calm Fund, I think seem like reasonable approaches to 
funding. Uh, but you really see, especially in a recession, you see all of the not unintended consequences, but the consequences of funding. And we're seeing in the podcast industry, especially we're seeing lots of companies publish reports that we, they've run out of runway and they're firing people, you know, all all the major podcast companies, Spotify and art 19, and they're either freezing hires or they're laying people off. And, Runway is such a, it's a foreign concept for John and I, because we, <laughs> it's infinite. we each invested 5,000, which was mostly just for the contract. And then our runway was, well, John's going to keep working his day job. I'm going to keep doing all the other business stuff I was doing. And we're going to just keep growing this until we can go full time. And it's when we could go full time, the the runway was it's infinite as long as uh, churn doesn't you know, exceed <laughs> revenue, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting. I I think this is why sometimes advice is difficult because advice is given in a moment. It only takes a minute to tell somebody what to do, but the repercussions of decisions and values are take a lot longer to play out. And um, I think we're seeing some of that play out right now. Folks that were hiring up with runway, which is we've got some money in the bank and now we're going to spend that hiring people that if we don't get revenue high enough, we're going to have to let go. And um, that, that idea, again, maybe one day we'll have to do work like that. But I just, I don't want to, (laughs) I just want to run a small company hire when we absolutely need to, or want to and hire out of revenue, meaning we've got enough money to pay this person. Even if revenue went down by 20%, we'd still be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find that transistor being a bootstrap company with those values in place is more resilient to the recession that we're currently facing. I think so because we also, we, I mean, again, this is the thing I can say all this stuff and then everybody can check in on me in two years and see what's happening. Cause we will, it's true. (laughs) I, I I could, and I'm not, I, I want to be clear. I could be wrong. I could be making the wrong decisions, but First of all, I'm, we're trying to live within these values we set up and we have these values that, for example, one of them is our physical, emotional, and mental health is more important than anything that's going on in the business. So if a contract is going to require me to take three red eyes in a month to sign things and meet with people, already I'm going to say no because I just know that's going to destroy me. Um, so living within your values, even if you the decisions you make end up not working out, at least you lived within your values, you know? I do think it makes us more resilient, though, uh, because we, again, we, we, we never had this idea of runway. We never had this idea of spending money we didn't have. And um, we're, we're, our margins are always, we always try to have some left over. And at the end of the year, if we do have some left over, we do profit sharing with our employees. So, and I think we've been able to do that every single, every single year and every single year since we've hired people, we've decided not to raise prices right now um, because in our mind, it doesn't make sense for our customers. It's like, if we're in a recession and everything else is getting more costly and we're serving creatives and we're serving a lot of prosumers. So people who are trying to build a brand or an audience or build their profile or build a little side hustle. If, if we raise prices on them, you know, as a former kind of prosumer myself, I would just quit. Like I, I would just cancel, you know, as soon as Adobe, uh, you know, raise their prices on Photoshop and all that stuff. I was like, uh, like 
oh, Sketch is cheaper. I'll just use that. And so it doesn't make sense for our customers. We're deciding to add more value and keep our prices the same because I feel like our prices are fair and we're still growing. So why would we mess with any of that? It's just, and the other thing is our costs, because we're small, our costs have not gone up that much. Sure. Uh, what are our, we have costs. Our biggest costs are people, but, and server costs have gone up a little bit. And, you know, our email costs have gone up a little bit, but it's just, it's fractional compared to, it's not like I'm running a coffee shop and, you know, the main thing I sell is coffee beans and like those have gone through the roof. It, it We're doing fine. And so to punish customers by raising prices when, it, when you know, where people are losing their jobs and prices are going up, it just didn't feel right. And we can run this for a long time. And our financial math is pretty simple. It's like our, it's not like our books are super complicated. We're not, there's not a bunch of variables we're having to check all the time. Like, oh no, what do the investors think? And oh no, what's the board think? And oh boy, what about this? And it's like, it's just simple. It's like, okay, how, how much money did we have coming in? How much money is going out? And John and I meet one, a couple times a month and just go through our every transaction. <laughs> like literally every transaction in our business, we just like, not every customer transaction, but you know, every Stripe deposit and then every expense. It's, it's not that complicated. And again, anything could happen. We could lose this all tomorrow. But uh, overall, I think it's making us more resilient. The reason I'm trumpeting this a bit is generally simple things are more resilient. If you have a well-built simple chair with less joints and all those kinds of things, it's going to last longer. If you, you know, if everybody knows like in the 80s and 90s growing up, you know, every once in a while you get a friend with a, who'd get a real fancy car, you know, and like a big dashboard, with like all these buttons and power windows and stuff. The fancier the car, the more stuff that can go wrong. Simple is more resilient. Like you'd get, you know, uh, my parents always bought manual transmissions because it was just like, it's just simple no power windows, you know, nothing extra. It was just like simple. And they do, they just break down less. So I, I think these principles also kind of work themselves out in other spheres. The less complicated things are, the less variables, the less contingencies, the less, you know, it's, it's actually the, the problem with web development is there's so many dependencies in web development and there's so many things that can break. Uh, it's, HTML, HTML on the web is pretty simple. That's why I love the web, but mm -hmm. simple things are resilient, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I guess there's a whole other layer too. Like the whole podcasting space is effectively built on open standards, which, which themselves are fairly simple protocols, right? You yes. RSS feeds where people, tools can pull episodes and meta information, HTML for the website that you create and JavaScript for the widget that you use to, to uh, embed mm -hmm. a podcast episode into something else. Essentially, the industry you're in and the tool you're building, all of this is built on open standards, on, on something that is simple by design, supposedly, yeah. but at least simple because it's so well distributed and, and ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, I think that the open standards are certainly bring more from a conceptual standpoint, they are a little bit more complicated to understand because people's frame of reference is the centralized standard. And yeah. I really experienced this with my daughter because um, she's 20 now, but when she was 18, she was writing this report for me, the Gen Z kind of report that was on a podcasting. Good one. That was a great one. And she's like, when we had a phone call and she's like, dad, I don't get it. Like, why are you so down on like all these central players? Like you seem to have a negative kind of feeling towards YouTube and Spotify. And what's, what's wrong with Spotify? Spotify's cool. Spotify's great. If I go to Spotify, it recommends podcasts. Like, isn't that a good thing? And I said, well, you're going to need some centralization for sure. But here's what's great about the distributed nature of podcasting is we're still pretty early in Spotify's cycle, but we've already seen how it affected artists. So Jack Conte of Pomplamoose tells this great case study 
of he was selling MP3s on iTunes and his band. It's a two person band and they're making about one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year on the band. And this is enough money for them to make music, to produce it, to put it out in the world for their fans to buy it. And they're full time on the band. They're making a combined one hundred fifty grand and, you know, life is good. And then streaming comes along and it it literally destroyed like 95% of that. And the, the he's still selling the same thing. He's still selling music. But it was the centralization that ended up hurting him because everyone decided, oh, I'm going to get my music through. The majority of people decided, I'm going to get my music through Spotify. And they just didn't have any other channels to reach their fans. There was no... There was no open... St- and he went on to create Patreon to kind of create an alternative funding model. What open standards like RSS give creators is optionality. So for sure, I think a lot of creators should be on YouTube because YouTube is a giant platform. It's a giant search engine. Uh, there's so many people watching and consuming video there. It's a, it's a great way to get your message out. But... For sure, I don't want to rely on it. I don't want to have all my eggs in the YouTube basket because the story is always the same. Facebook convinces all these local businesses to build Facebook pages, get everybody to like their Facebook page. You know, you go to a shop and they've got a little sticker that says, like us on Facebook. They're begging their, they're giving up their email lists to go all on Facebook and just have Facebook likes. And then a couple years later, Facebook goes, Oh, uh, now to reach your audience, you've got to pay for boosts. This is the, this, it's the same cycle. The, the entire structure of their economic model depends on it. You're eventually going to get taken advantage of. Guaranteed, by the way. <laughs> so right now, there's some YouTubers that are killing it, that love YouTube. Eventually, YouTube's going to do something that they don't like or they're going to get demonetized, or they're going to get kicked off, or they're going to have an ad that they don't agree with, or whatever it is. Or YouTube's going to change the algorithm. YouTube's going to say, you know what? We're going to move away from creator-based algorithms, and we're just going to go to algorithms like TikTok. And TikTok doesn't care who the video is from. TikTok is just going to show the most viral content of that moment, uh, which makes it harder for creators to build an audience. This is where it's going, for sure. Open standards, RSS, email, the web, um, these standards, they're messier, but because they're distributed, for sure, like Spotify and Apple would love to own podcasting, but they can't. They're, they're in this battle where there's tension between them. You know, Apple's got 30%, Spotify's got 30%, YouTube's probably got another 20% or 30% or 40%, but they're all in this locked battle of well, no one's going to own it. And as long as nobody owns it, creators own it. We have our RSS feeds. We can host them ourselves. We can forward them to a different hosting platform if we want. We can lock them down, but keep all of our subscribers. We can remove it from Spotify if we don't agree with their business practices. It gives us optionality. We can put ads in there. We can use bad language on there if we want. It gives us the freedom to do what we want and what we need. And it allows us to keep our audience. As long as people are subscribed to that RSS feed, yeah. you, no matter where you go, they can go with you. Yeah. The, on, the only thing we pay with is discoverability. Yes. Right? That's always been one of the biggest issues in podcasting to begin with, but also like people self-hosting their video. Nobody's going to watch it if they don't know where to find it. And the same goes for podcasting. Yeah, and this is what's strange to me is that we had this whole decentralization. It was almost like a cartoon decentralization movement with blockchain. It was like <laughs> all of these people were, were discovering decentralization for the first time. The mm-hmm. web has been decentralized before there was a web. Like yeah, right. Usenet groups... FidoNet on BBSs, all decentralized. DNS, decentralized. So the, the thing that runs all of the domains, domain names in the world is decentralized. It's just a bunch of... Re- every server has a list of you know all the domains and then where they point to. And it's distributed around the world. It's amazing it even works, right? And somehow Sometimes. in that system... And again... What, 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 here's the surprising part to me 
is whenever I point to these older systems like DNS uh, for discoverability, DNS, um, uh, I'm blanking, uh, torrent trackers, you know, there was uh, Usenet for sure, FidoNet for sure. These were old systems. Some of them were built three or four or five decades ago. And we never, it's like we just stopped that discovery and that curiosity. And then blockchain came along and then it just owned the conversation about decentralization. And even they weren't really focused on discoverability. And that's why you got all these centralized exchanges and centralized NFT marketplaces. It's like, if you're going to have an imagination of about decentralization, if you're going to put the smartest people in tech on a problem, why are we not doing any work on decentralized discoverability? And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's impossible. And I'm like, well, it feels like we have not been curious enough about it. And to me, it's not impossible because we had these rudimentary systems working and even like, even if someone just decided to help improve DNS, right? So right now, DNS takes, you know, a couple hours to update, usually sometimes longer, 24 hours. Well, why have we not gotten curious as a tech community about how we can improve that, you know? And then those same kind of tech could be used for um, discoverability other way. And in some ways, you know, this whole movement to Mastodon is interesting to me because you have this decentralized model and again, limited discoverability, but it's there. Like I can search for your username, even if you're on a different server and it finds it pretty quick. So we just need to augment some of these existing models. And uh, to me, that's a way more interesting question than saying, let's continue to build up, you know, let's just find the next YouTube and the next Google and the next Spotify. I know venture capitalists love that. And maybe that's why we haven't gotten decentralized discoverability because venture capitalists will not fund it. it well, they, they, they want to fund it, but they want to fund one thing. And, and the problem with, with decentralized discoverability is that it has to be federated. Mm -hmm. And if something is federated, it has to be a connection between different entities that is willingly maintained, right? Yes. It's like, what, what do you say with Mastodon? You have all these servers and they have to federate with each other. That means that each server has to accept all these other servers as like agents of truth yeah and if you if you want to do that if you want to fund that well now you have to fund a thousand people with a thousand different servers that's it's probably an incentive alignment problem because yeah. dns probably the same thing like the companies or the the non-profits that run these servers they have very little incentive to make it any better because you know like what what's in it for them it's it's being used as it is i i think you're absolutely right there's a problem there but the problem might just as well be that trust Again, like, yeah, kind of harkens back to what we said earlier, and, right? Everything is built on trust. Mm, yeah, same here. And, and the curiosity of just independent geeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> like, I guess. If, if you think about... Well, they're being snatched away by the Facebooks of the world, right? That's a bit of a problem. They're pulled into these, these centralized companies as well. Yes. They have very, again, very little incentive to do any thinking about decentralized systems if the system they work for is a centralized one. Yes. And I think, I hope, this is why I've always held on to these ideals from the early web. You know, I grew up in, I, I turned 10 in 1990 and grew up visiting BBSs. And that whole system, you know, it, it was this beautiful system of people building some open source stuff, but then also stuff that you shareware that you would pay for. And each enabled the other in this nice, I mean, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> I've got a little bit of rose colored memory here, but <laughs> good days, <laughs> but it, it was, it, there was something nice about it. And if you look at the bootstrapped companies that have succeeded, MailChimp, ConvertKit, a lot of email companies, <laughs> Uh, a lot of podcast hosting companies that the top, uh, you know, Buzzsprout, Transistor, Captivate, Castos, uh, we're all independent companies. We're not big public companies. Um, a lot of the, and even look at Basecamp, built on open source 
and the open web, right? HTML, CSS, TCP, IP, all, all of the protocols. These open, old, crusty, open protocols have enabled so much commerce. Independent commerce. It's like the bootstrap companies, why do the bootstrap companies gravitate to these kind of open, even like Tailwind. Tailwind is open source software, open source framework. And it's an incredible uh, independent business. Maybe one of the most profitable independent businesses ever created. You know, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Taylor's done the same thing with Laravel. Open source, open protocols, they generate... Um, opportunities for indie hackers, for bootstrappers, for solopreneurs. And this is why I think the the geek community or, you know, the tech community, this is why we need to be uh, rallying for improvements and innovation in open standards. And we're, we're doing this in podcasting right now. We formed a podcast standards project uh, similar to what Zeldman did with the Web Standards Project back in the, it was probably in the 90s or whatever. Um, like they were petitioning these big companies, Microsoft, convincing Microsoft to adopt open web standards. We all benefited from that. And you know who else benefited from that? Basecamp <laughs> and Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. But Basecamp <laughs> benefited from the fact that you could visit Basecamp.com and sign up and use it in Internet Explorer Firefox, whatever. Um, so I hope that we, we we haven't had some of these movements in a while, you know, and we got really distracted by crypto and M NFTs. It was like it had all of the energy of like building the open web again, but it was just not useful <laughs> in, in a way that has shown itself. And I, I hope now that, you know, crypto is kind of down right now. Um, I hope that we can take some of that energy and bring it back to these things that actually give us value now. You're going to, it's very likely your next business is going to be a boring web app built on boring old open protocols, TCP IP, DNS, HTML, CSS. It's all old and boring and we should be innovating on top of it wow i could not agree more like honestly the the idea of open protocols to me has always said nobody can take the market away from me because mm -hmm. the protocol will always be there right yeah. the, that's the, the kind of anti peter Thiel sentiment here you cannot become a monopoly in this market like yeah. tailwind couldn't become a monopoly because somebody else could build something different for yeah. different people and exist just as well nobody can buy the ip rights for tcp ip yes that does not exist that, yes. that cannot happen so and, great, and it, great advice and today P i'm sure there's i mean if microsoft could have owned any of that they would have they would love to <laughs> would have tried and, yeah, again, absolutely this is where this is what's funny to me. Sorry, I, I did one more tangent. <laughs> is I often get called, I, people say, Justin, you're too cynical and pessimistic about whatever. Elon Musk, crypto, venture capital, all these things. I want to critique, I want to critique people in power. I want to critique powerful companies. I want to do all that stuff. So if we're going to be cynical, here's what I don't like us being cynical about. Is I'll bring, so... <laughs> I'll bring up this idea of like, oh, email. Email is this beautiful open standard that we all benefit from. And people say, well, but really, who owns email? Gmail, right? And sure, Gmail is a big part of the market. But you know what you can't do? Is you can't create, <laughs> you can't create a Spotify profile not on Spotify. You can create a hey.com email address. And there's probably thousands, maybe even more than, maybe 10,000 independent email service providers in the world that will give you a unique email that is not Gmail. You can host it yourself. You can put a machine under your desk and host your own email server if you want to. I wouldn't recommend it. So... Sure, you, you can be cynical about that, but it's still an open standard. Gmail is not charging you to 
for every e- a stamp fee for every email you send. And I guarantee you, if they started charging me a stamp fee, I would move somewhere else. The these protocols are remarkably resilient to monopolies. So sure, Gmail has most of the market. There's still a lot of Hotmail addresses out there. There's still a lot of Yahoo addresses out there. There's tons of Outlook uh, addresses out there. Microsoft. You see the same tension of these big Goliaths, and they all want to own the market. But even with Gmail's success, there's still Microsoft. They're pulling and holding the balance of power. And independent nerds and smaller companies saying, you know what? I don't like the way Gmail does email, and I'm going to start my own email company. And you can do that. Like, those exist. And some of those independent email companies are doing quite well, you know? So the the cynicism I hear about, you know, those kind of standards, I'm like, and people will say, well, I don't even like email. I'm like, email is amazing for all of its faults and all of the mess. It's actually beautiful. And the same criticisms you apply to email and spam email, it's I could apply it to YouTube comments. Like I get so much bullshit YouTube comments. I could apply it to Google Analytics results. You look through like your refers and you're like, there's like 10 like spammy refers here that they haven't filtered out yet. It's everywhere, whether it's centralized or non-centralized. So uh, I don't think open standards deserve the kind of cynicism they sometimes get. Uh, it's like, no, this is beautiful. Email's amazing. Arvid can have a list of all of his uh, you know, customers and fans, and he can, he can download it as a CSV and have it on his hard drive, even if, you know, even if MailChimp decides to go take it away or convert it or whatever, you get to That's hold exactly on to it. That's exactly what I did. Yeah. That's exactly what I did. Like I had my, my list on MailChimp. They wanted to charge me a lot of money. And I said, nope, yeah. took my list, went to ConvertKit. Exactly the, the route I took. And there was no friction because it was impossible for that friction to exist because the standard is there. Yeah. Right? It was, yeah, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point. I, yeah. I think what you said earlier, like these, these systems, they generate opportunities for founders. Yes, yeah. that's, that's the the big big point here. I yeah. think. and with all the complexity of federation, and I, I guess email is a great example of that too. Mm-hmm. Like with the spam filters and like uh, the trustworthy domains, like that the big players are trying to push the smaller ones aside, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't want to federate with them. Yeah, because it's not in their interest. But in in the end, if you you know if you build a solid system based on solid protocols you could still operate your own email server and communicate with people on gmail so yeah it's not a problem you just have to yeah. understand how the technology works yeah and the nerds at gmail by the way the nerds who are running those email servers fundamentally there's still these like these intrinsic values baked into these protocols so even if gmail is like ah we're not super stoked that a lot of people are switching to hey.com <laughs> The nerds at the G- at Gmail are still going to receive emails from hey.com because the values are built in, you know? Anyway, that's probably enough on open standards, but I I'm I'm a a big proponent of them <laughs> and I think we've missed again crypto was a distraction especially for indie hackers on um where most of the value on the web has come from and it's been <laughs> the open web open standards. We've all benefited from it. Every bootstrapped company has been benefited from it. And uh, we should be investing more in it as yeah. as independents. Yep. As you said, the values are built in and they're built into the, the protocols, the open web. Mm-hmm. They're also built into Transistor FM, which is kind of cool to mm-hmm. know that this is a business that started from values and then just attached them later, but came out of it. I'm, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. That, that was a lot of insight into <laughs> a very interesting industry. I, as a podcaster myself, I'm excited to understand it better because it's, it's the world that I'm, I'm in and I want to be in. I want to make better too. And I'm so glad that you are at the, on the forefront of making it better. The committee, super, super interesting idea, like establishing and kind of being a proponent for change for the better. That's awesome. Th- thank you so much for, for doing this. And thank you for talking to me about it. Um, it's I'm almost, um, 
yeah it's i'm I'm just yeah it just makes me very happy to see the journey that you've been on like both with transistor and before and the building in public that you're doing the communication that you're doing in your newsletter on twitter um where do you want people to find you if they want to learn more many more very interesting things i mean i would love for people to sign up on my newsletter justinjackson.ca slash newsletter i'm still on twitter the letter M, the letter I, Justin. Mm-hmm. I'm spending a lot more time on Mastodon. Um, if you search M I Justin on there, you'll see me on Mastodon.social. Um, but yeah, come hang out. And I do. We we have a podcast that we haven't published an episode on in a while. Um, but mm-hmm. if you haven't listened to our story, Build Your SaaS chronicles our whole journey from nothing to where we are today. I'm a big fan of that podcast, and I hope there will be more episodes in the future, but no pressure. You know. <laughs> Same goes for your newsletter. It's it, it's sporadic, but it, whenever it appears in my inbox, it's always good. Yeah. Same goes for the podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Bootstrap Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. You'll find my books and my Twitter course there as well. If you want to support me in this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will help the show. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.